The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo. She's an award-winning media literacy educator, innovator, and strategist, and she's the founder of InsidersEducation.com, which helps people learn from media and one another. She has taught thousands of teachers, students, childcare professionals, media professionals, parents and guardians, as well as healthcare providers to understand and harness the power of media. Dr. Rogo was the founding president of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, which is where our paths crossed many years ago. She is the author of several books, but her most recent, and the one we'll be talking about today, is titled Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates. It was published by the National Association for the Education of Young Children in 2022, Dr. Rogo earned a Ph.D. and Master's in History from Binghamton University in New York and a B.A. from Indiana University. Welcome, Dr. Rogo. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Well, I think that we have both used media literacy education in our focus of work. And they're different, but there always seems to be an application for it. I wonder if we can start out with a definition of media literacy. What is media literacy education? So what I like to do is talk about the purpose. What's the goal? Because we can throw around these words that are definition. It's to teach people to analyze and evaluate and you know media, and then people don't really know what that means. So here's what it means. We want people to develop habits of inquiry related to the media that they use and we want them to be able to communicate with the media tools we have available to us today. So it's habits of inquiry, and we call it skills of expression. So doing that is what media literacy is all about. It's in many ways, for me, very much like what we think of as being literate in the world, except it's more than just reading print. It's also being able to take in all the things that our media commonly feed us today, which includes images and sounds, as well as print. So we still have to learn how to read and write with words (laughs) and text, but we also need to learn how to read and write with images and sounds. Exactly. I became interested in media literacy, and what really led me to the first media literacy conference was I was involved in public health and looking at tobacco use, alcohol use, fast food consumption, and weight and health in children. And that led me to wonder about the power of media messages in influencing children's choices, as well as adults. I think we tend to think that we're immune to the power of media, but really we're all susceptible and vulnerable, even those of us who have had media literacy training. What do you think about that? Right. So everyone thinks, oh, well, I'm not influenced by that deceptive media over there. It's only those other people I'm worried about, (laughs) right? Right. But the truth is, the more media literate you are, 
the less likely it is that you will be subject to some of the powers of media. But there are a few things to know about media that make it clear that all of us have certain kinds of things that we can't escape. And one of the things is that it has an influence on our society and on our culture. And so just if you live in this world, you are being influenced by media right now without you necessarily even thinking about it. It's also, I think, people get into their heads of it's this very one-way thing. Media is just talking to me and or talking to its users or, or sending messages one way. And all of media is an interaction. So it isn't just one way. Media are not all powerful. They are powerful, but they are not all powerful. And it's the interaction. So we want to make the interaction where we bring to it more consciousness because a lot of the people who make media, especially who are using media to make money, want us not to be thinking when we approach media. And that's where in the work that you're doing or have done with, say, kids and obesity or you know things like that, where the way that we're sold so many foods that aren't good for us is reliant on a certain use of media where they're depending on users not to be thinking consciously about the messages that they're sending. And media literacy kind of does the polar opposite. It says, no, actually, we're going to help you think about it and if we do it well, it'll be very much like learning to read print. So, you know, when you learn to read print, your brain can never go back and look at printed text without seeing words. You can't, right? Your brain wants to make meaning, and if it knows how to make meaning of the symbols that are text, then it makes meaning from that. So part of my goal is to say, I want media literacy to become kind of so ingrained in people's brains that they're thinking about the media they encounter automatically. That's wonderful and so sorely needed now. You know, when I look back, I was focused on children's health, and I remember looking at advertisements in magazines of young people drinking alcohol. And I remember one of the points that I learned in media literacy education was that you will never see an advertisement for alcohol where people are drinking alone. It's always framed with, you want to have more friends, you want to have more fun. The way to do it is with alcohol. And those words were never stated on the page. It was done through image. Right. Images are powerful, and one of the most powerful ways to communicate. And we often remember them more than we do reading print or hearing, even hearing people, say, give a lecture. But we spend almost no time in schools today teaching people how to read images. And in the digital world especially, that just doesn't make much sense to me, which is why I've been dedicated to doing media literacy education for the past 30-some-odd years. Right. You know, you've got a wonderful website, and it's for our listeners, it's www.insiterseducation.com, and I'll provide a link in the show notes But you've got a quote from Hannah Arendt, and it says, if everybody always lies to you, the consequence is not that you believe the lies, but rather that no one believes anything any longer. Why did you choose that quote? Because 
I think too often we get focused on the narrow thing. Oh, if I can just teach somebody to fact-check that story, they'll see that that story isn't true. And they lose the bigger picture of when you're inundated with things that aren't true all the time, we begin to lose a sense of trust. And ultimately, that sense of trust is one of the things that must exist for kind of societal coherence, that we begin to break apart if we can't, if we think we can't trust anything. And it goes, you know, in recent political years, we've had lots of misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns and things, but there are also more subtle forces at work. We in the United States have had a doctrine, a legal doctrine, called caveat emptor for a long time. And caveat emptor means buyer beware. And on the one hand, you want to say to people, yeah, don't be an idiot about things. If things are way too good to be true, they aren't true. And you have to take some responsibility for being that person. But on the other hand, what it's done is created a world where we accept, we expect that companies who sell stuff will lie to us. And that can't be acceptable. That the default is, yeah, I I don't believe they're ever going to tell me the truth about their product. So there's that line between, are they going to make it look good? Sure, they should make it look good. It's their product, right? But we so mistrust it doesn't have to exist. And once you do that, then the people who do have accurate information, especially accurate health information, well, we say, but why should we trust them? We don't trust anybody. Right. And so that's why I have the quote from Hannah Arendt on the site, because I think it's so core to media literacy, because a big part of media literacy is who do we find credible and how do we know? How do we find credible sources? How do we determine what criteria do we use? And that is such a critical issue for our time. I mean, we certainly saw that with, and we are continue to see it with COVID. It's been so interesting to watch the language around climate change and how we've tried to express that it's real. And we're witnessing changes, but there are so many excuses for what we're witnessing. And so there again, I think those of us who work in science have such a hard time with this because we are so fact-based. It's like, no, 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 let us give you the facts. And then when people don't want to accept those facts, we just don't know what to do with ourselves. You know, I think that science and media literacy have so much in common, and it becomes so clear when you're looking at how you teach this to younger children, because we go back to some of the core skills, and it's, well, how do we do careful observations of things and make note of what we see and attend to what we're we're seeing? And so... That's a big part of teaching science is this whole careful observation. And then the other part is, and we connect our conclusions to specific evidence. Now imagine if that was a habit from the time you were in preschool all the way on, and that everybody had a standard of logic and reason, that no matter what else you believe, no matter what else happened in your community, that was kind of a standard on which you functioned and we agreed on 
certain types of trusted sources. That would change the game, how misinformation or disinformation about things like climate could get out there. Hence your focus on young children. Yes. I think this is one of those lifelong skills. And I think the the message too often for adults has been, well, just pay attention to screen time, right? If we just count the screen time and make sure they're not in front of screens too much, it'll all be all right. And I think, you know, maybe I was never really fond of that argument, but maybe it kind of made some sense when mostly the only thing that children were accessing was television. It's certainly not true now. It's not true in part because what's much more important than the time you spend with a screen is what you're actually doing with that screen, what the content is, what your action is in relationship to the screen. But also because if the message is, well, just make sure that your kid isn't exposed to too much media, then what you're not doing is teaching any skills, right? You're not preparing children to be active and engaged and thoughtful and mindful in this media world that they're growing up into. Right. Dr. Rogo, let me take one break because we're halfway through and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Faith Rogo. She is an award-winning media literacy educator. She's an innovator and strategist. She's the founder of InsightersEducation.com, which helps people learn from media and one another. She is also the author of a terrific new book titled Media Literacy for Young Children Teaching Beyond the Screen Time Debates, which is what you just touched on. I need to be fair, though, to our listeners and say that despite the title, it sounds like it's for teachers only. But if you consider the fact that we are all teachers of children, whether we're parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers in a classroom, in daycare, whatever, if we have any influence in a child's life or want to, then I think this book is critical reading. How would you describe who this book was designed for as you were writing it in your mind? Who were you speaking to? So I really wanted to do something that was for specifically for early childhood educators. And part of the reason was because in early childhood education, it is often still the norm to say, well, screens interfere with appropriate development in young children, and so we just shouldn't use them at all. And in fact, we hear, I hear very often the kind of what sounds to me like an old canard of, well, because they watch so much at home, we shouldn't have it here. And to me, it was always the exact opposite. It's in their lives, therefore, as educators, it's our responsibility to help them navigate it all better, right? If it's not in their lives, then we don't have to worry about it. But the idea that it would be in their lives and in their lives in a major way, and that would be a reason that educators wouldn't deal with it, never made any sense to me. So there was no resource specifically for early childhood educators. So that's who I was kind of thinking of, and a lot of the specific activity ideas that are in the book are intended for people who are working in educational settings with very young children. But that said, 
one of the things that I found as I was writing it is, of course, you know, no one's ever given media literacy education to these adults who are working with children, to these professionals. And so the probably almost the whole first half of the book is really written for adults in kind of the key concepts and ideas about media that are important to know because it's really hard to teach something that you don't understand yourself and that you don't have experience with yourself. So step one of becoming a media literacy educator, whether you're a formal educator or an informal educator, like you were saying, you know, parents, anyone, grandparents, anyone who spends time with children, step one has to be you have to understand what these concepts are so you get the end goal of what it is we're trying to accomplish with the activities that we suggest. And you've got great activities in here. And if we have time at the end, maybe we can dive into some. But I need to bring forth something that your comments just reminded me of. And that is a statement that you have on your website, where you're helping people understand, well, why media literacy? And you say, because an informed citizenry is essential for a healthy democracy and planet. And that is what makes it essential. So I think that in these times, you know, back decades ago, when I went to my first media literacy conference, there was a lot of emphasis placed on television screens and helping kids interpret. And when we're sitting together and watching the screen together, things that we can interject to help children think more critically. And then fast forward to today, and we have all kinds of screens and apps where children are really faced one-on-one with the communicator behind that screen. So in my mind, media literacy education has become ever more important. Well, I'll never disagree with anyone who says media literacy education is important. I think it's critically important. I think it's as important as we used to think of literacy as being, that you know, it's essential to become a functioning person in the world. I think media literacy is that now, that you can't really be truly powerfully literate without being media literate in today's world. And I also think that one of the responses has been, well, okay, we'll just kind of shut it off. I don't want my child to be exposed to that media, and so I won't use screens. I won't give them a tablet. I won't let them use my phone, you know, those kinds of things. Except, again, that doesn't give kids skills, and it doesn't help us make sure that media are responsible and do their jobs and function at least somewhat in the public interest and not just in advertisers' interests. So one of the things that I've begun saying is media literacy only has to be part of the answer to our current woes in society if we don't care about democracy. If we value democracy, then we can't censor how people use media. We can a little bit. I mean, there are functioning democracies that have figured out that there are certain limits to free speech, and they've begun to figure out or were in the process of figuring out how to apply that to the digital world. But we can't just say, oh, they don't get to talk. And that means we have to educate the users. There is no other choice there. So if we value democracy, media literacy has to be part of the picture. So let's compare decades ago and the focus that you had on media and compare that to today. What do you see 
as some of the most challenging areas in the media that children are exposed to today, as well as adults? But we'll keep our focus on children. Well, I think they're actually interrelated. I think one of the things is the mobility. And so you do have more screens in more places now. And that can lead to certain kinds of things where, and the reason I say it's interrelated is because it's, it changes interactions with grown-ups. And the reason that that's important for young children is that young children are watching adults in their lives, not just for kind of specific lessons, but generally, how am I supposed to interact with the world? If they're looking down at a screen instead of up at the adults in their lives, then the kind of mirror that they're looking at for, well, how am I supposed to be in the world? Who am I? Is a mirror that generally is controlled by people who don't have their best interests at heart. They may be great storytellers and can be really fun. And there is a, a role for entertainment. There's nothing wrong with media entertainment as long as it reflects a parent's values or a school's values. But we do have to be careful that we don't go overboard in saying, well, okay, it's easy to, say, use a screen in a restaurant, and kids will stay quiet and well-behaved, and they'll just be looking down at the screen. But then they're missing the conversation that adults are having, how they interact with the wait staff, how they think about what they're going to order, you know, all of those kinds of things that you think of, well, that's no big deal. But it's part of the social fabric. And I, I think that's one of the things we need to pay attention to. I also think it's very important for adults to pay attention to what they're doing with screens that changes the world for children. So it's not just, well, what's on that screen that the child is watching? It's probably a YouTube video. It's you know, in many cases, actually, there's so much more actual educational media out there. There's a lot of stuff that's labeled educational media that is not educational. But there's a lot of great stuff out there, actually, for young children these days. But we've changed our patterns. And so if adults are using their screens, you know, where children used to hear conversations, even if it was one-sided conversations on the phone, now that same adult is on Facebook talking to their friends, and children aren't hearing anything. They just don't hear those conversations anymore. Right. And that affects language development, and it affects socialization. So I think adults need to ponder what their own relationship is to screens and what children are missing out. And the message is not, oh, therefore screens are bad and we need to stop being on social media and we need to... No, it's to say, let's think about what children need and we live in a digital world. Let's think about how they're going to get it. Well, you, of course, were one of the key developers for the key media literacy questions that I carry around with me. And you've got on page 56 of this excellent book, the key categories of media literacy analysis and sample questions. And I love the way you start out the list. You say, I wonder. And I love that way of being with anyone just to have a conversation with a child or a fellow adult to say, you know, I wonder about. And I thought that maybe we could go through some of the questions that yeah. help make us be more critical thinkers and media literate. 
Do you want to go through some of your favorite questions and maybe apply them in a situation? Sure. So one of the questions under the category of responses, for instance, is about how this makes me feel, mm. but also the one beneath it or the, the next two beneath it. So now that I know this, what do I want to do? Or what can we do to change the story? We can teach kids to ask questions, and this is where the habits come in. It's not that you would use questions in this specific wording. It's categories of questions. So we have a category that's called responses. And we can instill a habit to say, every time I approach media, I have these questions in my head, and I know I can interact, and I know that I don't just have to accept at face value what this story is telling me. I can ask questions about it. So that would be one. I think the, the questions like, I mean, some of the questions are obvious. So it would be, I wonder, well, who's telling this story? Why are they telling this particular story? What does this want me to do? Those kinds of questions tend to be the basic ones. But I also think that there are questions about, say, interpretations and effects, like who might be sad or happy because of this? Or why do they think this is important? Do I think this is important? Or even thinking, you know, what would somebody I know think about this? So what would... Ultimately, we want a parent's or family's value voice in the child's head. If mom or dad or grandma or my auntie or whoever it is, if they knew I was watching this, what would they think? Would they think this is funny? Would they be sad by this and why? Because that, and, and if they're asking those questions, then even as a parent, if you're not with them every second, you know that they have your values inside their head. Mm-hmm. And that's the lens that they're interpreting through. This is such a treasure trove of help in terms of teaching children how to expand their world and their imagination of what could be. And I think one of the reviewers of your book actually prided you in your ability to ask that question about imagination and instilling imagination and creativity in children. And I just really commend you for this. We just have a minute left, and so I want to leave that open to you to leave our listeners with any last thoughts that you might have. I think when we're looking at media literacy, think of it in some ways. If you've ever sat with a young child and read a book with them, what a joyous experience that can be. And I want to see us develop a media literacy that doesn't come out of our anxieties. It's an answer to some of our anxieties. But it doesn't come out of our anxieties. It comes out of our joy. Because this is a world of inquiry. It's like science. Science can answer some of our anxieties, but it also can be this incredible font of discovery and exploration and a wonderful way to think about being in the world. And that's where I want media literacy to go. Well, I want to thank you for your decades of work and especially for this excellent book. 
We are out of time, so I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Faith Rogo. She is an award-winning media literacy educator, innovator, and strategist. She is the founder of InsightersEducation.com. And as someone who has worked in promoting public health and protecting our environment for decades, I think that this book, Media Literacy for Young Children, Teaching Beyond the Scream Time Debates, applies to every single subject matter I can think of. So thank you again, Dr. Rogo, for this incredibly important work. Thanks. A pleasure to be with you.